You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Understanding God's Righteousness, episode number 72, the principle of judgment, considering God's judgments. God has made judgments offering no avenue for repentance. In the same pattern as Christ's final judgment of forever life or forever death. We can prepare ourselves for our judgment before Christ by considering these examples of divine judgment where God offered no avenue for repentance. We are continuing with our Understanding God's Righteousness series. I do apologize for the disruption last week. I experienced a number of technology failures the day before I was supposed to present last Thursday's class. We had to replace both of our cell phones, Dory and I, and and my laptop went black and would not accept the charge. And there were actually some other um, technology failures in our house on that same day. Oddly, that was stories in my 48th wedding anniversary. It wasn't really a very happy day. Now, even though I had been backing up my data, the, uh, the older computer that I fired up doesn't have the updated operating system and wouldn't allow me to access any backed up files from over the last year. Uh, but I'll be getting my new my newer laptop back tomorrow. Should be all set. But we are moving forward with our studies. We had been considering the divine principle of judgment, and particularly examples of God's judgments where there had been no opportunity for repentance. And this is the exact frame for our final judgment of forever life, forever death, before at the judgment of Christ. This will not be a rebuke. There will be no opportunity for repentance if we are rejected. Therefore, considering similar judgment records in Scripture should offer us some insight into what God has demonstrated as being highly unacceptable as well as acceptable, permitting us to prepare for our judgment. While we do have access to grace, forgiveness, and imputed righteousness, those advantages are not automatic and cannot be presumed as being somehow unconditional. That presumption of universal approval would be an eternally suicidal frame of reference. So we did start to consider God's judgments in context of the Equality Rebellion of Korah, Dathan, Abiram, and on. There were three separate judgment applications in this incident. The first judgment was a surgically precise earthquake, killing the leading conspirators of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, but also their wives and their little children, although apparently with the exception of the sons of Korah. These families in the truth were miraculously buried alive by God. There was no opportunity for repentance, when Peter and Jude both reference this incident in their warnings to our brotherhood in the ecclesial age, it is noted how God cast them down to Tartarus, that deepest grave, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved 
unto judgment. Jude uses similar language, saying, God has reserved them in everlasting chains, under darkness, unto the judgment of the great day. Even though God judged them at that time, that was only the first death category, that temporary death experienced by those accountable to eternal judgment by the Son of God, as opposed to the second death category, which is forever. The second judgment application were the followers of the leading conspirators, and they were burned alive by fire from heaven. These were the 250 Levites trying to usurp the role of the priesthood, despite enjoying such a divinely elevated appointment of tabernacle service and the support of the priesthood. These 250 brethren in the truth were incinerated by fire from heaven. This was not a rebuke that offered any opportunity for repentance or voluntary corrected behavior. The third judgment was the following day, when thousands of the Christadelphians of that generation objected to Moses personally destroying those wonderful brethren, those respected sisters, and those little children. God inflicted a fast-acting plague that immediately started killing these ecclesial members. By the time Aaron could return and stand between the living and the dead with a censer loaded with fire from the altar of burnt offering and incense, 14,700 had already died from this very fast-acting plague. So let's continue considering that third group. They were not the conspirators in this rebellion. They weren't even the followers who actively participated in the rebellion. Yet still, God's judgment against those 14,700 does not offer any avenue of repentance. If that plague had been a slower-acting disease, like, like our deadly COVID-19, there may have been a possibility for repentance. But even that third layer of brothers and sisters that were not directly involved in that rebellion were judged with a quick death, offering no repentance. The problem was that they had been inappropriately influenced by the rebels, objecting to their executions and presuming that God couldn't possibly have approved of these judgments on the basis of how they were highly respected members of the Ecclesia. They identified themselves with those God executed instead of considering the righteousness of God in those legitimate executions. We noted how our current enlightened community suffers with this same problem today, that there is a common presumption that if our brothers and sisters respect us, then God has to respect us as well, that if we're acceptable to the other members of the current enlightened community, then we have to be acceptable to God. This is a deadly delusion. This is contradicted by endless examples throughout Scripture of how the most divinely acceptable servants of God were abused, despised, and often murdered by the respected members of the enlightened community. The wilderness ecclesia repeatedly spoke openly of wanting to kill Moses and return to their slavery in Egypt. 
David was dethroned and hunted by most of the brotherhood led by his own son, ambitious son. Jeremiah was treated incredibly harshly by our brotherhood during his ministry. Elijah had to hide with a widow in Zarephath because the Christadelphians were hunting him to kill him. God's prophets were often killed by the enlightened community. Jesus forewarned his closest disciples that some of them would be killed by those presuming they were doing what God wanted, as was the case with Brother Stephen. The Apostle Paul, who was complicit in Stephen's death by stoning, was constantly opposed by leading brethren traveling from Jerusalem in order to corrupt the gospel in the Gentile ecclesias that Paul had established. The leaders of the enlightened covenant-bound community, the Christadelphians of that generation, conspired against Jesus Christ and had him crucified. The enlightened community has a long history of these three layers of failures, prompting those three divine judgments demonstrated in that equality rebellion. What we need to recognize on a personal level is that we don't have to be leaders in the usual rebellions against God's righteousness or even the followers in order to suffer God's unpleasant judgments. All we have to do is respect the right of the rebels and rebellion participants to oppose God in order to suffer God's judgment of rejection. Let's look at another example of this third failure application of those 14,700 who died from the plague, those who were merely influenced by those openly contradicting God's righteousness. <clears throat> this is the account of the man of God and the prophet of God. The man of God came out of Judah to condemn the altar um, of uh, Jeroboam, and of course came from the border of Judah. Uh, after the altar is miraculously broken up and King Jeroboam's arm is miraculously healed, the man of God is invited by the king to come with him for food and a reward. The man of God responds that he was directed by God to leave without eating or drinking and even to return a different way than the way he came. But the sons of a certain old prophet of God who lived at Bethel witnessed all of this and her and told their father who was appropriately not in attendance the old prophet of god had his sons saddle his donkey and pursued after the man of god probably in desperate need of some real fellowship with a fellow prophet and he finds the man of god resting under an oak tree i i have sometimes heard our commentators complain about this supposedly lazy man of God who dared to rest when he should have been scurrying back home that different way. I find such a suggestion to be completely absurd. There would be no legitimate reason why that obedient prophet could not take a moment to rest after such a stressful day and a long walk to his God-appointed dangerous assignment on that long walk back home. His failure was not in taking a brief rest. His failure was trusting his respected Christadelphian brother uh, 
that old prophet of God from Bethel. The old prophet invited the man of God to return with him to his home to enjoy a meal and some fellowship. The man of God, again appropriately, repeated God's conditions and declined. But that prophet of God was already aware of that objection, as his sons had told him the whole story. The prophet had already planned how to deceive the obedient man of God to selfishly enjoy that fellowship that he had been missing after the kingdoms separated and Jeroboam began to corrupt the brotherhood in Israel right in that prophet of God's hometown of Bethel. So the prophet of God lied to the man of God about an angel instructing him to bring the man of God from Judah back to his house. The man of God had already declined that offer. So something had to change in his understandings of what was the right thing to do, as he did follow that old prophet of God back to his home to enjoy a meal together. Now one might wonder what would have been the basis for such a reversal. It could safely be assumed this prophet of God probably had a reputation as a prophet. People certainly share stories <clears throat> involving prophets. He was an old prophet, suggesting he had been a prophet for some time. The man of God certainly trusted the validity of the prophet's report of an angel directing him to ask that man of God to do exactly what he had been told directly by God not to do. Let's realize that it was not the liar who was sentenced to death by God. It was the one who knew the truth, but believed the lie from a respected Christadelphian. That was the mistake. Trusting the older respected brother in the truth with a positive reputation, being influenced by a, a well-meaning but misguided corrupter within the enlightened community with a personal agenda, just like the 14,700 that died from plague in the Equality Rebellion because they chose the respected brethren over God's righteous judgments. As I've always said, what matters is what is being said, not who is saying it. We should respect our community's pioneers, but not worship them. While referencing the understandings of our pioneers and respected members of our community can certainly have some value, let's not quote them as if we are quoting the Bible. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 5 about this respect that's necessary. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, You shall not muzzle the ox that treads out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his hire. But if we assume our pioneers could not make a mistake, then we are making a mistake. I mean, even John Thomas made some mistakes. The only one who didn't ever make mistakes was Jesus of Nazareth. This issue 
of the layered pattern of divine unacceptability due to ecclesial members being influenced by ungodly behavior or ungodly understandings that contradict God's testimony is also demonstrated in the ecclesial age discipline policy of fellowship withdrawal. When an ecclesial member remains adamantly unrepentant after being rebuked for ungodly behavior or, or teachings, then the divinely prescribed course of action is to withdraw fellowship. This is not a stoning or an execution as in the previous divine dispensation. That judgment did not take into account the opportunity to repent. Ecclesial age discipline is a far different application than the previous divine age. There is a dual saving intention in the ecclesial responsibility of fellowship withdrawal for the non-repentant offender of God's righteousness. We oddly hear sometimes that fellowship withdrawal is all about destruction and performed without love. That's exactly the opposite understanding that God and Jesus present. Paul withdrew fellowship from Hymenaeus and Alexander so that they might learn, might repent. And he expresses it as learning not to blaspheme. One doesn't learn anything if they are stoned to death, which was the invariable judgment for blasphemy uh, under the laws of the first kingdom of God that Hymenaeus and Alexander had to learn not to do, not to blaspheme. This dual saving nature and the fellowship withdrawal um, application is highlighted by Paul when he addresses the issue of the Corinthian brother living with his father's wife who refused to abandon his ungodly behavior. The two concerns Paul expresses were to save the unrepentant sinner but also to save the ecclesia from being influenced by that unaddressed insult to God's righteousness just like the 14,700 that died from plague in the Equality Rebellion, as they were influenced by the rebels, but not directly complicit. So we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, where Paul writes, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such in one, unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So the primary, but not exclusive, motivation for this commanded fellowship withdrawal was to save the offender. This social distancing was intended to impose an embarrassing rebuke, to encourage a reversal from that arrogant, unrepentant position. But there was another saving component to this new ecclesial age procedure for dealing with unrepentant ungodliness within the enlightened community. Let's just read the continuing advice of the Apostle Paul, being inspired to write this by the Holy Spirit and being done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verses uh, 6 through 8, we read, Your glorying 
is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrifice for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. The secondary problem was the resulting negative ecclesial influence due to non-action that would qualify as a degree of divine unacceptability, just like those 14,700 that died in the plague in the wilderness because they had been inappropriately influenced by the rebel leaders and their followers. This ungodly influence danger is testified to in both the scriptural and creational testimony of the contagious nature of divine unacceptability. If one came in physical contact with something unclean during the first kingdom age, they were automatically unclean and had to pursue a correction, a cleansing, to again qualify for the physically acceptable condition of cleanness, holiness, in order to pursue that physical aspect of holiness that was so emphasized under the laws of that first kingdom of God. But they could not only become personally unclean by touch, they became a new uncleanness host, being able to make what is clean unclean simply by physical contact. This is similarly the contagious nature of many diseases, such as our current COVID-19 pandemic. We pass disease by touch and by inhaling the exhalings of those infected with one of a variety of diseases. Our health is degraded due to the influence of others. This is a divine principle that is expressed through both of God's witnesses, the Bible, and creation. But we have to protect ourselves from the negative influence of others, both physically and spiritually. In the context of the pandemic, we do this through isolation, through vaccination, and through masks. We protect ourselves from the potential negative physical influence of others. We can also do this spiritually, as divine unacceptability is not simply limited to the direct offenders. Another corresponding divine rule would be the law of the watcher. If one is unwilling to warn another who is offending God's righteousness, then God declared the one refusing to rebuke would be personally guilty of the offender's sin. We read this in Ezekiel, well, one of the places we read this is Ezekiel 3. Verse 18, we say, When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him not warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at your hand. Yet if you warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul, your life. Again, when a righteous man does turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die, because you have not given him warning, 
he shall die in his sin. And his righteousness, which he has done, shall not be remembered, but his blood will I require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he does not sin, he shall surely live, because he has warned. Also, you have delivered your soul, your life. The point is that our own degree of divine acceptability or unacceptability can be affected by others within the enlightened community. So these three layers of divine judgment in the equality rebellion each offered no avenue of repentance, which is a pattern for our own impending eternal judgment by Jesus Christ. We too will not have an opportunity to repent as the judgment, that judgment is final and forever, one way or the other. Let's turn our attention to another divine judgment that also provided no avenue of repentance. God's unexpected execution of Nadab and Abihu was not a rebuke permitting a correction. There was no room for repentance, but that was, but, I'm sorry, the question is what? was their failure that imposed such a severe judgment. Well, this was the eighth day of the priest ordination procedure. And interestingly, similar to God's instructions for the Feast of Tabernacles, we see an initial uh, emphasis on a term of seven days being identified, and then an eighth day is added to the term. In, in Leviticus chapter 8, uh, we read in verse 33, and you shall not, Moses instructing the uh, priest applicants, and you shall not go out of the door of the tabernacle of the congregation in seven days until the days of your consecration be at an end. For seven days shall he consecrate you. But three verses later, later we read this in the first verse of chapter 9. And it came to pass on the eighth day, the eighth day, that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. This eighth day in the priest ordination procedure was when God sent fire from heaven twice. Once was for acceptance and once was for rejection. The first was when fire fell from heaven to consume the combination burnt and peace offerings on the altar of burnt offerings. Uh, Leviticus chapter 9 and verse 24, the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people and there came out a fire, a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar of burnt offering uh, the, and, the fire, and the fat, which when the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. But the very next couple of verses describe another fire from heaven incident but this was that judgment for which no avenue of repentance was offered. In uh, chapter 10 and the first two verses, And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer, and put fire therein, and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before Yahweh, and he which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said unto Aaron, This is that the Lord spake, 
saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified. First, just a side note, this sounds somewhat like the very different judgment that God later imposed on the father and the uncle of Nadab and Abihu, when he declared that Moses and Aaron were forbidden from entering the Numbers chapter 20, the explanation is given. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because you believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. Both judgments for these two generations highlight this missing sanctification. Nadab and Abihu, in their drawing near to God, their being invited to draw near to God, failed to sanctify him by following his instructions exactly. Moses and Aaron failed to sanctify God when they did not follow his instructions exactly about simply speaking to the rock at Kadesh, asking for its water instead of striking it, as they had done at Rephidim at the beginning of their journey. Now, this is just a side note to emphasize how important it is for us to sanctify God in all that we do, following his instructions as given and not modifying them for personal convenience or preference. This Nadab and Abihu judgment incident has a direct application to ourselves, as we too are priest applicants, just like the sons of the high priest in that first kingdom age. We want to serve as the immortal priests of the kingdom to come on the basis of being the sons of the high priests of that restored kingdom age. And there, there will be no gender differential when the saints are reborn into God's spirit nature in the immortalization process. We're told particularly that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, when we are one in Christ, which certainly doesn't happen without becoming of one spirit nature with him. So unlike the ecclesial age, when sisters serve in that Levite-like support role, and the brethren serve in the priest-like primary role, in the kingdom, the gender-based dual roles will disappear through that immortalization procedure, and all the saints will be the priests of God due to being born again uh, in that spirit nature of the children of, God, of the Son of God. So this judgment offering no repentance imposed on these priest applicants, these sons of the high priest, offers a particular application to ourselves. So, our big question, as usual, is why? Why did God burn these priest applicants alive in front of everyone? What prompted this second fire from heaven on that same day? What was this violation of the sanctification of God? So, the answer is very clearly expressed. We're told that Nadab and Abihu either, uh, 
took either of them his censer and put fire thereon and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. Nadab and Abihu were being creative. They wanted to modify God's directions. Perhaps they thought the fire and incense show might add some entertainment to the process on that day. This alone is bad enough. Thinking that we have the right to change the appointed earthly shadows that God has assigned to extend from his heavenly principles? But there's another failure that appears to be apparent due to the new law God immediately poses on the priesthood following this execution. And Leviticus, also in Leviticus chapter 10, dropping down to verse 8, And Yahweh spoke unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations that you may put difference between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. It is therefore probable that Nadab and Abihu were under the influence of alcohol, impeding their judgment, their sense of what's right. Alcohol consumption itself is not divinely unacceptable. <laughs> Obviously, Jesus referred to his doctrine as the new wine that had to be stored in new wineskins. Jesus also turned water from six stone pots at that wedding into wine. The Apostle Paul advised his beloved Timothy to drink wine for the benefit of his digestion. And of course, we drink the memorial wine representing the blood of our Messiah, following the pattern that he established at that Passover meal on the day of his death. So it isn't the alcohol that's the problem in and of itself. The problem is the impaired judgment when excessive alcohol is consumed. Again, God's judgment was not imposed suddenly on Nadab and Abihu because of an alcohol content. That judgment, without any opportunity for repentance, was imposed because they added a component to the priesthood ordination procedure that God had not commanded. We do not have the freedom to change the shadows God commands to be observed, because if we change the two-dimensional earthly shadows, that automatically changes the three-dimensional earthly substance casting those shadows. And we only have Four rituals required of us during the ecclesial age. And this is a dramatic reduction from the first kingdom age, and it's, it's also, also the, re, the approaching restored kingdom age. One would think we should be very careful about practicing these shadow rituals exactly on the very basis of this judgment without repentance against the priesthood applicants of the previous divinely appointed age, as well as how Paul declares that brothers and sisters in Corinth were being made sick and even executed by Jesus due to their disrespect of the memorial service ritual. We read in 1 Corinthians 
uh, chapter 11, beginning at verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eats and, eats and drinks unworthily, eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Some of the brothers and sisters in Corinth who were not sanctifying God through respecting the memorial service ritual were being weakened, physically weakened, suffering disease, and even dying due, as Paul declares, for this cause. Jesus was given all authority in heaven and earth. Jesus was responsible for killing those ecclesial members, just as his father was responsible for killing Nadab and Abihu for the same reason. In fact, Paul references the same problem that some in the Corinthian ecclesia were actually drunk at memorial service. If we um, move back to verse 18 of that same chapter 11, Paul writes, For first of all, when you come together into the ecclesia, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating, every one takes before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. This disrespect to this one of the four ecclesial age rituals immediately followed Paul's explanation and rebuke of the ecclesia in relation to another of these four divine shadow rituals. This was the two gender-based head covering laws with their two separate applications, how brethren could never cover their heads during any prayer, at any time, in any place, and as well as never having a head covering on while miraculously prophesying. Sisters were commanded just the opposite, to always cover their heads during either of those activities. The, the shadow ritual extends from the divine principle of headships. If one refuses to follow God's directions, then they are refusing to sanctify God, and that has potentially severe consequences. As we have seen in the judgment of Nadab and Abihu, as well as the judgment against Moses for not following God's directions exactly at the Kadesh Fountain Rock. But similar to the disrespect of Nadab and Abihu to the consecration of Yahweh by the proper execution of his ritual directions, there is a spiritual parallel to this alcohol influence as well. If we allow ourselves to be influenced by the paganized Christian frame of reference, then we are drinking their wine. Revelation 14 is a description of the introduction of the Millennial Kingdom. We read of the 144,000 in whose forehead is written the name of God, which were redeemed from the earth. In that context, we read this. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Well, Rome is the modern-day Babylon, which is interpreted for us very 
clearly in Revelation 17, we're told the harlot sitting on the beast had the name Babylon, the great written on her forehead, and this Babylon-identified harlot was in reality the city of Rome. In Revelation 17 and verse 18, we read, And the woman whom thou sawest is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. John wrote this when he was exiled on the Roman prison colony on the island of Patmos. Rome was that city ruling over the kings of the earth, and Rome is the religious whore who has made the kings of the earth drunk with the wine of her fornication. If we allow ourselves to be influenced by the self-worshipping corruptions of the harlot church or the global society that she has made drunk, then our capacity to sanctify God will be severely crippled. You, you might want to ask, well, how could that possibly happen? How, how could Christadelphians possibly be directly influenced by the harlot church? Let me give you a fairly recent, rather extreme example. There was a YouTube recording of a kitchen table conversation of some Christadelphian brothers, members of the Carolinx organization, who were actually discussing whether anyone believing in the Trinity might actually be offered immortality by Jesus Christ when he comes for judgment. <laughs> this, this video was brought to my attention and I responded fairly briefly, asking how one, respecting the blasphemous signature doctrine of the Antichrist system, the denial of the flesh of Christ, could possibly qualify for salvation from a God who demands truth. Sometime later, it was brought to my attention that a somewhat respected brother from my own ecclesia joined this conversation, but in a way that did not actually contradict the legitimacy of their premise, that respecting blasphemous doctrines, contradictions of God's righteousness, would not necessarily prevent a potential salvation experience. But by the time I was notified of that exchange, the comment capacity was shut off by those Carelinks Christadelphians who just didn't want to have to listen to any criticism about themselves. This is just one example, and it's rather blatant, but the list for these examples of refusing to consecrate our Creator in our thoughts, words, and deeds is almost endless in my lifetime. This influence from drinking the wine of the harlot church is similar to how God forbid the priesthood of the first kingdom age to consume alcohol when performing their services in his sanctuary, which appears to spring from Nadab and Abihu, modifying God's ritual instructions during the eight-day priesthood ordination procedure. God's judgment was not a rebuke, offering any avenue of repentance. They were executed by God in front of everyone. So our original point was that our judgment before Christ will also not offer any avenue for repentance. It will be final and we will result in either eternal life or eternal death. And we are warned repeatedly by Jesus Christ in the context of judgment and judgment parables 
that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and severe disappointment, and that many will be called to the judgment, but only a few are going to be chosen. Therefore, these examples of divine judgments where there was no opportunity for repentance should offer definition in what constitutes divine acceptability and what constitutes divine unacceptability. So we will continue this line of reasoning in our next class, considering other divine judgments that offered no opportunity for repentance. I had originally intended to move on to the principle of thankfulness with this class, but I realized we had not directly addressed a very significant issue concerning faith, which is the trials of our faith. There are a number of rules found in Scripture about these expected challenges to our faith. First, Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at btf at cdvideo.org. If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.